Is that, am I looking here? Okay. <clears throat> it's been pointed out to me that radio has come back now that everyone's listening to podcasts. I always thought, I grew up in radio, radio days, as they say, before television. I can remember when there was not a television. That's how old I am. Uh, but I used to listen to radio lying in my bed, listening to all kinds of great things, and your mind could just go off on that. Now, the pleasures of podcasts are bringing that back. So we've gone back. There's just a brief interregnum in which television reared its ugly head. Because <laughs> <clears throat> the ears are much more powerful uh, method of everything. The music is powerful, and listening to the teachings is powerful. But that's not what I'm here to talk about tonight. I want a happy Easter to everyone. And in Easter, we celebrate... Uh, basically, we celebrate the immortality of the soul, the, the triumph of Jesus over death, and thereby our triumph over death, or the, uh, the fact of the eternal, uh, the eternality of the soul, uh, which overcomes our feeling of uh, finiteness, and so tonight I want to celebrate that, that fact. Here's a quote from Abhinavagupta, the, uh, the great sage uh, and teacher, 11th century teacher of Kashmir Shaivism. <clears throat> he ta he's talking here what about what he calls buyer of a consciousness. Buyer of a consciousness. Really, the goal of what we do here could be described as buyer of a consciousness, although we wouldn't do that. Uh, we might call it higher consciousness. We might call it a state of consciousness in which there's no suffering. There's a joy, there's love, there's peace. Here's what he says. He says, how does buyer of a consciousness differ from the other lower states of conscious consciousness which are full of difference. So he's using uh, differentiation as a criterion here, that differences, separation, unity, Bhairava consciousness is unity consciousness, and, and the lower consciousness is fragmented. He says, Bhairava consciousness expresses delight in the unity of the endless variety of existence but is still integral. It's a complex sentence, but it's very interesting. It's saying that when you're in Bhairava consciousness, you can enjoy the play of everything and still remain in your state of unity. You can enjoy the multiplicity. And that's a big ask, because most of us find a lot of things that happen quite distasteful, <laughs> quite unpleasant quite disagreeable, quite objectionable, quite whatever, all those things. <clears throat> but viable conscious, you, the play, all the play of everything, good and bad, uh, you get what you want, you don't get what you want, this and that, everything becomes uh, a delight. A delight while still holding on 
to the oneness of everything behind all the changes. He says other states are fragmentary. That means they're constantly fluctuating, coming and going, they're lost in separation and division. Then he says those who have received proper training and have penetrated into divine consciousness know this difference for themselves. <clears throat> it's not a, a matter of uh, intellectual understanding, but you have to do the practice, you have to uh, do the yoga, you have to meditate, and then you know the difference through direct experience. You begin to realize when you're in an integrated state and when you're in a fragmented state, when you're in a state of harmony and joy, and when you're in a state of negativity, separation. And then you discover, not only you, you see that, the first step is to see that, not to hide from it, not to deny it, but to see it. And then gradually you learn how to return to the state of integration. And that's what meditation does for you. <clears throat> and so in, in this way, we celebrate the real meaning of Easter and the real meaning of Jesus' ministry, which was to insinuate us, to show us that integrated state of consciousness. In, in, in Christianity, they call it Christ consciousness. We call it samadhi, or, or uh, the state of shaktified existence. However we want to call it, it's possible, it's potential within every one of us. So tonight, uh, in honor of Easter, I'm going to celebrate Baba. <laughs> and uh, I've got some selections, and I've got a special surprise at the end of my talk. No, I'm not going to play my harp. <laughs> I might do that anyway, but... <clears throat> and no, I'm not going to not play my harp. That might be the real surprise. <clears throat> but um, we have a surprise. Uh, Meanwhile, I'm going to uh, share some of the some selections from the 1970 World Tour. Uh, the 1970 World Tour was Baba's first tour of the West. He was one of the real pioneering uh, yogis who came to the West uh, early on in the piece, <clears throat> and uh, his 1970 tour was quite short. He came to Australia too. He traveled everywhere with uh, Ramdas. Ramdas kind of introduced him and explained him to audiences, and then Baba, Baba spoke. Ramdas, of course, was my connection to the path of yoga. And by some strange fate, uh, on the day that Baba left India, pretty much the same day, I haven't got it exact, but I left America looking for Baba, but I didn't know it. I left America to fly to Europe to, to travel overland to India. I was looking for my teacher, and he left coming there. So if I had hung around, I would have met him sooner. <laughs> because I, you know, Ram Dass would have been introducing this yogi, I would definitely have met him. But it was all perfect. Um, <clears throat> so these are a few images from, from the 1970 tour. Let's see. This is uh, Baba and Ramdas. 
This is a still from the film Sunsea, which showed great uh, little bit of Baba talking about meditation. Isn't that great? Uh, next. The Baba around that period, 1970. What else do you have? Yeah, you can tell this is the 1970 tour because Baba's dressed like a hippie. <laughs> in later tours, he was dressed like a gentleman. But in 1970, uh, he was like that. Probably from Melbourne. Is that it? Okay. <clears throat> so I'd like to uh, welcome you all. I forgot to welcome you at the beginning. I got so intoxicated with Easter. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Baba always welcomed people by saying in Hindi, With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that was the essential message he gave, to welcome people with love, to live in a state of love and acceptance, not a fragmented state, but a state of love and acceptance. And he manifested that for us, and he welcomed us every night like that. So these are some, some question answers from, uh, from that tour, the 1970 tour. And I picked one. Uh, in which a Christian monk asks a question in honor of Easter. He says, <clears throat> it seems that there are parallels in our religion to the experience of Shaktipat. Shaktipat, of course, is the awakening of Kundalini, the awakening of higher consciousness, Bhairava consciousness, that happens in the presence of a great master like Baba. <clears throat> and so, uh, this monk had heard about that, and he says, uh, our religion also has saints, such as those you've mentioned. Does Baba see a similarity? So he says, in Christianity also there's an awakening. You know, if you read some of the, uh, uh, the epistles of the disciples, you know, in the early days, uh, the, um, the early disciples of Jesus were holding meditation intensives. And people are speaking in tongues and getting all kinds of awakenings, very similar to, to uh, Shaktipat. Baba says, this is precisely why I'm here. I've traveled from east to the west, and I find that people are the same. They look the same, they eat food, and eliminate it the same way. <laughs> and they produce children the same way. <clears throat> they're born and they die the same way. They breathe the same air and they drink the same water. There are also, there are no differences essentially among any people. At the most, their skin color varies. So obviously very basic and very direct. We make so much out of differences, differences of uh, ideas and credo and belief and all that stuff. Similarly, names may differ, but the thing is the same. There are many names for water, but the water is one. You can call it different names in different languages. In the same way, there are many names for God, 
but God is one. Truth is one, and therefore the ways of attaining it are similar in all cases. <clears throat> Hence, you are bound to find parallels in all religions. We've divided the earth into many countries, but it really is just one earth. Similarly, we've divided religion into many religions, but it's all one. God is one for all. All distinctions, whether of country or religion or any other, are made by man. Good, isn't it? <clears throat> for God, there are no distinctions. For God, everything is God. So that's good. I'm, when Baba said that about we've divided the, uh, the earth into many regions, um, many countries, uh, I always remember when I was a kid, I read uh, 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 Mark Twain wrote a sequel to um, Tom Sawyer. It wasn't as good as Tom Sawyer, but it was a little story. And uh, I guess, you know, you know the way they do sequels now? Um, Die Hard 2, Die Hard 3, Die Hard 4. Right? So he must have been very popular, Tom Sawyer. So they said that his publisher said, hey, come up with a sequel. So Tom Sawyer 2, it was called Tom Sawyer Abroad. And in it, Tom and Huck go up in a balloon, a hot air balloon or whatever kind of balloon they had. And they're floating around America. <laughs> it was quite ridiculous. But they, they look down. And uh, Huck says, where do you think we are? And Tom says, well, I reckon we're over Kentucky. And um, Huck looks down and he says, no, it can't be Kentucky. And Tom says, why not? He says, well, on the map, Kentucky's red and that's green down there. <laughs> Man-made, yeah? That's all I remember from that book. <laughs> Now, at the um, 1970, it was uh, right at the end of the, the uh, psychedelic movement, the 60s, the raging 60s. Uh, so we got this question, devotee, can drugs help one meditate better? <laughs> Very apropos. <clears throat> you know, um, I, left, uh, I left America when was it? Uh, late September, I think, 1970. I got to India early November. And in the time between leaving America and getting to India, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix died. And it was like closing the book on a, on a, a period, not just for me, but the whole culture in a way. It was all different. <clears throat> Personal anecdote. What do you think that means? Nothing. <laughs> Bob always like to ask me that. What do you think that means, Shankar? <laughs> what? Who? Jim Morrison was later. He he died while I was in the ashram. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. The whole the whole thing was closing down. The end of an era. Baba says. Meditation is completely independent. It does not depend on any external factor. Further, meditation is far more intoxicating than any drug can be. Therefore, it's better not to turn to drugs. If you're not able to meditate at first, it does not matter. Once you get started, you'll experience great joy.
Besides, he who arises to the highest states of meditation will not be affected by drugs, even if he were to take them. They, they used to tell the story of Nim Karoli Baba was given some LSD by Ramdas, and Ramdas said all he did was twinkle a little bit. <laughs> and they tell a similar story about Baba, but I'm not sure if it's true. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, there's nothing wrong with twinkling. The experiences induced by drugs, Baba says, are only in, uh, imitations of the genuine experience of meditation. For example, the sound of a tambora is similar to the form of nada, nada is the inner sound, uh, the divine sound, but is only an imitation and does not truly compare. It is far more satisfying to listen to the melody which vibrates within than to listen to external music, no matter how good you think it is. Having heard the inner music, no external music will sound as good. <clears throat> I remember my father saw internal art. My father was an artist, of course, and right at the end of his life, he had a vision, and he saw a divine art, and he was just struck with wonder, and he told me all about it, and it was an abstract, abstract art, which he was against all his life. And, and he talked to me like a kid, it was wonder, he said, I saw this art, and he couldn't explain it. It was abstract, and it was, you know. Uh, the same is true for meditation experiences. Once having experienced the true inner bliss, drug experiences will seem useless. In India, <clears throat> many so-called sadhus use drugs such as ganja, bang, and opium. If you, especially if you go up to the Himalayas, go to Rishikesh, Hardwa, you see a lot of them with their chillums, you know, puffing away and all that. It's quite possible that these drugs turn the mind inward and different experiences may come. But drugs wear off and the experiences cannot be retained. So he's acknowledging that you can get a certain experience, but it doesn't, it's, you, don't, you haven't earned it. So you, you haven't learned how you get it, and you can't retain it. Meditation, he said, Baba says, is the most potent drug. Moreover, it increases one's understanding and mental capacity, which is not the case with drugs. The cumulative effects of drugs tends to be negative, even in the case of the less potent drugs, whereas you increase meditation, the effects become more and more positive. The more one meditates, the more subtle and sharp the mind becomes. Another question that very, very uh, in vogue at that time, in fact, my father asked this question of Baba, <clears throat> devotee, if God is love, truth, bliss, satchitananda, why does misery, suffering, and confusion exist? I've heard this question many times. Why is there suffering? <clears throat> Baba, very interesting take he has on it. Are you ready? <clears throat> it is we who are responsible for the suffering, misery, and confusion in the world, not God. God is like the sun, shining equally on all. For example, when the sun rises, a religious man will worship the Lord, but a thief will go into hiding. The religious man is happy that the day is dawn, but the thief is unhappy. When the sun rises, the owl becomes blind, 
and the crow retains his sight. <clears throat> in all these cases, the sun is blameless, sinless, pure. It is their inherent qualities which make them react differently, each according to its nature. We are responsible for our own condition. To think that somebody else is responsible for your state is a delusion due to false ego. Happiness or unhappiness do not depend on outer circumstances. What really matters is your inner state. If people took care of their own inner conditions and were content within themselves, there would not be any suffering or misery or confusion. The world is as you see it. If you're established in inner peace, you will see that the same peace stretches forth on all sides. So don't blame God. <clears throat> One of, it reminds me of uh, uh, my old friend Chandra from those days who was in Ganeshpuri with me. And she's a very no-nonsense kind of woman. She became a uh, person, what do I call it? A what? Life coach. Life coach. And she's very hard-headed and she wants, whoever comes to her, you can't do your racket with her. She says, get off it. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for your own. Don't complain about crap. Take responsibility. You created your own life. You have to begin from there. Now, really tough. I'm not like that, I think. It's, it's everyone else's fault. <laughs> <clears throat> but I admire her. But it, it actually, actually, really speaking, Spirituality begins when you take responsibility. You don't blame the government and the, this people and that people and this one and that one and your parents and this and that. But you say, look, this is what I've got. This is who I am. If I want to transform myself, I have to work within myself with a lot of integrity and for a long time and change the tendencies. If there are negative tendencies, I have to get Rid of them, I have to overcome them. Devotee. Let's see, we'll skip that one. That's too controversial. Not really. <clears throat> oh, here are a couple of good ones. Okay. Devotee. If one is doing sadhana, sadhana, of course, is spiritual practice. Now, everybody is doing sadhana, by the way in the highest sense. Everyone who's born into this world, even soul, uh, this is called karma bhumi in the scriptures. This is a place where you live out your karma and you're doing sadhana. You're coming to grips with being spirit caught in a cage of flesh in a difficult world. And so everyone does their sadhana most of us do our sadhana unconsciously. That is, we don't know that we're doing sadhana. We think we're in the game of getting rich or getting powerful or getting loved or acquiring things, whatever we can think the game is. But at some point you wake up to the fact that it's really about growth and sadhana, knowing the self. Um, so then, you, then sadhana becomes conscious. But that's what sadhana is. 
<clears throat> and it's good for sadhana to become conscious. But if people aren't ready to wake up to it, you can't force them to wake up to it, as I found to my dismay. Because <clears throat> if I had a formula to wake everybody up, I would do it. If, you do, but they don't want it. What? You do, but they don't want it. <laughs> they don't want it. You can't do anything about it. <clears throat> if one is doing sadhana, is it necessary to read scriptures? How important is it to follow the discipline expounded in the scriptures? <clears throat> there are several things that are aids when you do sadhana. One is the scriptures, which is the testimony of great beings. I would include in scriptures as the writings and, and talks of great beings, as well as the, like the classical texts like the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishad, but also that. <clears throat> and then there's the guru, the teachings of the guru. And for me, the greatest scripture is my guru's writings. That, and in my guru's words, that's the greatest scripture. Uh, and then there's your own practice. Whatever methods you use, whatever meditation you do, there's all that. And then there's your own understanding, how you contemplate your situation, life, your inner being, and you work on that. And that's all part of, that's all part of sadhana. Baba says, it's important to read scriptures for a very practical reason. You may be having experiences or have reached a state which you do not understand. By reading the scriptures, you come to know their significance. You must also understand the nature of the goal for which you are striving. This knowledge is as important as the sadhana. They're like two wings of a bird. The bird needs both to fly. He's saying, Practice is one thing, but understanding is another thing. You need both to understand and to do the practice. You can't have one without the other. <clears throat> well, you can, but, but it doesn't work. As far as the discipline laid down in the scriptures is concerned, it's absolutely valid and therefore necessary for you to follow. The purpose of scriptural disciplines is to purify the mind. This discipline is not meant for the attainment of God. God is already within you. <clears throat> it is only because the mind is impure and confused that you do not know the Lord dwelling within. The wonderful perspective that struck me when I first met Baba is he's saying, you don't have to attain God, you have God. It's just the chattering, the tendencies of your mind obscures it. So you have to just point, get the mind pointed in the right direction and then the divinity will be revealed. For example, he says, on a cloudy day, the sun is not visible, but if a wind disperses the clouds, the sun will be there, shining as always. The sun was always there. <clears throat> we were just unable to see it. Mental purification is the only purpose of the discipline in scriptures. Not, he said, not to attain God, but to purify the mind, to get the mind straight. If your mind is impure, you will not reap the fruits of sadhana that you're practicing. Therefore, discipline is most important, especially for seekers who have just begun the spiritual journey. If you lived a disciplined and regular life, 
you'll be able to clarify your mind very quickly, thus fulfilling your goal in no time. Of course, Baba was the legendary disciplinarian. <clears throat> and a lot of people who met him on that tour went back to his ashram in Ganeshpur, and then they learned what discipline was. Because <laughs> it was very intense uh, discipline. But of course, it was a place of huge and enormous growth. Magical, you could say. <clears throat> Two more on the guru. You ready? <clears throat> My voice is a little bit croaky tonight. Is that all right? I feel a little croaky. All right. <clears throat> I know what it's from. <laughs> I dare not ask. <laughs> I can tell. I'll tell you later. You tell me, tell me. I'm sure you will. <laughs> what about, I just tune into it psychically. <laughs> How about that? Yes. <clears throat> All right. Devotee. There are people who say that since God dwells in our hearts, we don't need a guru. Krishnamurti, for example, says you should accept no human authority on spiritual matters. How do you feel about this? <clears throat> Baba. It's true that God dwells within all, yet a guru is absolutely essential, not only for bringing you to that realization, but for enabling you to retain that realization permanently. Everything we know, we learn from others. This is true in every field, and so it is with the spiritual field. We all have the capacity to learn, since God dwells within all. But the true guru is the one who can teach you in the spiritual field, since he himself has achieved the highest and become God-realized while still in his physical form. As for Krishnamurti, <laughs> and everyone else who says that gurus are a waste of time, <clears throat> I would like you to follow this statement to its logical conclusion and reject what Krishnamurti says because he is also a teacher who is wasting your time. <laughs> he wants people to accept what he says, but not what other people say. You can judge for yourself if this is a valid position. <laughs> so why should you believe Krishnamurti? Right? Anyway. And finally, another one. These are very 1970s type questions. <clears throat> but they're still current, aren't they? I've told the story of Baba nailing me. I was on tour with him. And uh, we were in, staying in the house of a devotee at an extensive library. And I was in the library there. And I'd you know, been deprived of libraries. <laughs> and almost everything else except God God was the only thing on offer there uh, and so I was looking around and, and I, I saw a volume of Krishnamurti and I pulled it down and I started reading it and of course the door flew open and there was Baba and of course he said oh Sankar what are you reading 
So I said, the Bhagavad Gita, Baba. <laughs> if I'd been a little more advanced, I would have said that. But I said, Krishnamurti, Baba. <laughs> Knowing full well that my head was about to come. And he said, oh, <clears throat> he's a very good writer, and you're a very good reader. <laughs> and then he walked out, and I thought, and that burned me more than him yelling at me. I still can't work it out. But he was so kind. <clears throat> he knew I'd already been busted. Baba says, the relationship between a guru and his disciple is a concrete and living reality, as I just told you. It is not based on concepts, but on actual communication. You may accept someone as your guru, who is not in physical form, but how can he accept you as disciple? How can he initiate you? How can he guide you and remove your doubts? There's also the danger of making the promptings of your own ego, taking the promptings of your own ego for actual inner guidance when the guru cannot be reached to validate your experiences. <clears throat> it's therefore important to be with a living master. Once you've received the shakti of a guru, it's not important to be in his physical presence all the time. For example, you will feel my presence much stronger after I've left. I don't know where this was, but I'm thinking California. <clears throat> I'm going to live within all of you in the form of the guru. By constant and regular meditation, you will place yourself in tune with the inner guru, and you will receive direction and guidance from within. Great answer. And obviously, Jesus has lived within people for centuries and centuries, so very appropriate. So that's the end of uh, what I have to offer, except this little thing, which I thought in honor of Easter, I'm not going to give out Easter bunnies or do a Christian ritual, but I'm going to show a few minutes of a Baba video. And it's not from 1970. This is uh, a video from around 1978. And Baba was on Yatra, which means I took a pilgrimage around India to holy places in India. Uh, I wasn't on this tour because I was back in, in Ann Arbor doing my work, my service there, running the ashram. But Devi Ma was on this tour. The part of it. The first part of it. Uh, but this is the second part. Uh, he goes to, uh, where does he go? Yola. He goes to Yola, which is very beautiful because Yola was where he landed in Maharashtra. Baba was from South India. He came north to Maharashtra, and he lived in Yola, and he did his sadhana there after he met Bhagavan Nityananda. He went back there, and he meditated near Yola, um, and he became very well known in that area. So he went back and visited with the, all his devotees, they went back to Yola, and he was received like a visiting, uh, return, returning king or something. And then he went to uh, Nasik, which is another holy place. But enjoy, watch this, and then after that we'll meditate. There were 800 Westerns. Was, he was traveling with 800, oh my God. Baba was traveling with 800 Westerners, David Moses. So let's watch. It's got kind of kooky subtitles, but they're helpful.
Sarah Barber pursued his sadhana for many years. During this visit, he consecrated the Galapati temple over the Lotus Court at the same time, and he spoke to the people. Many of you have come to welcome me with great love, because I am a boy who belongs to your place. It is a matter of great fortune for me that you have invited me to inaugurate this temple. And for that, I thank you with all my heart. It is very good that you consider me a boy from this village. Even though I stay elsewhere, I belong to this place. The essence of food and water of this village is still in my blood. I grew up in this village and learned to speak Marathi here. So many of you have gathered here and are wondering what Muktananda Swami is going to say. I traveled in many countries and I made everyone aware of what meditation is, what the self is. And here also I say one thing, that you should love and respect God along with living your worldly life. Bala visited the place where he used to hold bhajans outside his meditation room. He gave darshan there for some time. Baba's devotees of yoga include some of those who had cared for him as a young man. And they continue to love and revere him to this day. Principally famous as the place where Ram, Sita, and Lakshmana spent several years in exile. However, for Baba's devotees, the fact that he lived in two rooms inside the Ram temple there for three years is equally as fascinating. Inside his old room for a while, Baba sent the devotees to visit Mukti Dham, a large modern building which houses replicas of India's holy places and many statues depicting the scriptural stories. Thank <laughs> you. 
Some of those here at Nasik had known him since the early days of his son. Meditate now for 10 minutes. Wasn't that lovely? Great subtitles, weren't they? What was the best one? Huh? What was it? Batman. Batman. 